0: Hello, and welcome back to The Restroom, the podcast about living well with chronic illness. I'm your host, Natasha Libman. In today's episode, we're asking, what actually is self-management? Improvements in healthcare have meant that more and more people are living with multiple chronic conditions for longer periods of time. With this shift, chronic illness is now a major focus of healthcare. At the same time, we've seen a move away from the traditional patient-clinician relationship towards a greater emphasis on patients learning to manage their own conditions and having more of an input in their treatment. On paper, this sounds great, but the reality is that many people with long-term conditions feel unsupported, neglected and abandoned, left to deal with the weight of their conditions on their own. I live with conditions that primarily require self-management. By that I mean they have limited medical treatment options in terms of things like medications. It doesn't help that I tend to react very badly to a lot of medications anyway, but even so, it means that most of my interventions are based on long-term things that are very much centred around actions I have to take in my own life. It's worth mentioning that this is primarily due to the fact that I have conditions that are underfunded and under-researched, and so these more lifestyle options are some of the only things on the table. Seeing emerging areas of research looking at actual biological mechanisms and the potential this has for treatment in the future is something that I'm following with great interest. Self-management is a big focus of this podcast because there are so many skills I've had to learn in order to manage my condition, but I felt like I was never given the tools to be able to do that from the medical professionals who were supposed to help me. My experience was very much, here are a few stock things to try, and then if they didn't work, I was left on my own. So how does this all look in practice? Well, I have to think a lot about pacing, how I literally structure my day and the activities I do in order to better manage my energy. I have to think about strengthening and management of acute and long-term injuries. I have to think about what I eat, both in terms of nutrition, but also in terms of how that impacts my energy and other symptoms. And I have to think about how much work I can do on any given day, whether I can be social and how much rest I need. And that's just the start of it. From baths and heating pads and massage oils and fascia balls to rest, relaxation and learning to meditate, the very structure of my life is built around symptom management and trying to minimise as much unnecessary exacerbation and unnecessary suffering as possible, so I can feel as good as possible even with my challenging conditions. The thing is, there seems to be a lack of clarity around what self-management actually is, and as we'll explore throughout this episode, this uncertainty is a big part of the problem. I'm delighted to be joined by Jackie Wolombe, who's a physiotherapist working for the NHS in England. Jackie works with people who are in hospital due to long-term persistent or chronic pain, and her aim is to help people get to a place where they're able to go home, but perhaps with a bit more support than when they went into hospital. Jackie is also working on her PhD, which focuses on the self-management of chronic pain, and she's the co-chair of the Physiotherapy Pain Association. So to start, what does self-management mean to Jackie?
1: it's really difficult for me. Can I instead say what I used to think self-management is? So when I started working as a physiotherapist, we only started talking about self-management a little bit later into my career. So I don't remember learning about it. I just remember I used to work in a musculoskeletal, so, you know, injuries, back pain, That kind of service. And our letters that we wrote to the GP, who was our referrer, would say, the patient is successfully self managing. We are discharging them back to your care. And so I just assumed that self management meant that they were all good. And I don't think I interrogated it any further than that. Then, when I worked in a more specialist setting, which is my current area of self management, We use that term all the time, prolifically. And I started to kind of try and understand better what we meant by self-management. So I'll give you a good example. We might be in a meeting with the doctors and clinical psychologists and nurses in a meeting together. And the way we would speak about self-management then would be as not what the medics do. So it was very much... Someone would say, are they suitable for self-management? And that would really be shorthand for anything that the psychologists, the physios and the nurses did, which obviously, as you can appreciate, is a huge bunch of things. And then we also talk about a self-management approach. And so I wanted to know what what is a self-management approach. Um, So I asked a couple of colleagues just in passing and I got so many different answers And that really is what led me to do my PhD because I thought this feels like a really important thing and I don't know what we're talking about. So what are we talking about? So that's my cheat answer, but I certainly have a lot more insight and thoughts about it that we can talk about if that would be helpful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. What were some of the answers that your colleagues gave you initially and what was so different about them? So I
1: think the biggest one was the the shock of why would you even ask such a question? So it seems to be so self-evident that if I say we're talking about self-management, surely we all agree. Um, and then when I pushed a little bit, it would be really in the language of cognitive behavioral therapy, learning skills and strategies to live with a chronic illness, in this case, chronic pain, but also, it seemed to include or exclude use of medications or things like rest. So, some people would say that's not a self management strategy, but others would say, of course, that's a self management strategy. Things like activity management or even seeking healthcare. So, some colleagues would say, well, they're doing it. So, that must be part of the approach. Whereas some people felt quite strongly that seeking additional healthcare was not aligned with self-management as an approach. So I think I was quite struck by how much confusion there was. But despite that, and even having done my PhD and talked about it for four years, still now when I speak to my colleagues, they'll still say self-management as a shorthand for any number of things that could be going on. What was clear was self-management from this population was not literally what people living with pain were doing. That seems to be, that wasn't in the equation. It was more what we as professionals told or advised or encouraged our patients to do.
0: As we heard from Jackie, there is such a lack of clarity around what self-management actually is. We'll get into this in more detail shortly, but first I wanted to hear more about Jackie's research. My PhD uh, research was
1: guided by the question basically thinking about how do people who are excluded or who have dropped out of specialist pain services, how do they do self-management? And additionally, I was interested to understand how they were they were or could be better supported in policy and in practice. So this was quite a big overarching idea that I was curious about. And I used social science methods and interdisciplinary. So because I'm a physiotherapist, I'm looking at stuff that involves psychologists, medics, etc, etc. I had quite a broad approach to how I would answer the question. So because place is important, so in the UK, you get access to services pretty much depending on where you live so i selected an area of the country that was pretty representative of most other areas and decided to look at self management in that local area so i first started by speaking to healthcare professionals and managers and commissioners about their understanding and experience of self management and i just did that through interviews and that involved general practitioners social prescribers, pharmacists, ambulance uh, or paramedic staff, psychologists, occupational therapists, physiotherapists, pain specialists. I think I've covered the whole bunch of them and that was what I'd call phase one. I then took that information and spoke to patients. Technically they weren't patients of the service because I was interested in how people are excluded so they were people who were living with pain who may or may have not been patients and I spent some time so rather than a single interview we did an interview and then we caught up over a six-month period um, because of COVID um, that was not face-to-face that was through telephone calls or video calls and they showed me around their homes mostly so that I could get a better understanding of what real life might actually look like and what self-management was from a real perspective rather than a, uh, a theoretical perspective. And then the final phase, really, which has happened throughout, is I looked at the academic literature and I looked at the policy literature to understand how those areas were talking about self-management. So the start was self-management of chronic illness more broadly. And my findings, I would have to say, is that self-management of chronic illness more broadly is pretty well defined. So when we talk about illness more broadly, you have known definitions that are used. But when I looked at the literature for pain, it was a complete mismatch so the meanings were varied the meanings were assumed there was lots of assumptions going on and therefore when I then looked at what is self-management according to my case study I came up with quite a lot That there's a lot of different versions of self-management about
0: It's easy to see why there's such confusion around the term self-management. If clinicians can't decide what it means amongst themselves, you can't help but wonder how this translates to the care that patients are receiving. I asked Jackie to explain what some of the more general definitions of self-management are in the chronic illness space. They tend to be based on
1: a team at Stanford in the United States who developed what's called the Chronic Disease Self-Management Program. And that was very much a lay-led, so led by people with the illness in question, community embedded, but very protocolized set of skills that they would, it would be based on psychoeducation or and learning a very specific set of skills, some of which we're all very familiar with around problem solving or improving self-efficacy. So that is Kate Lorig and her team at Stanford. It's very well defined in the literature. It's very well embedded. It's because it's part of the wider health system. So it's not a standalone thing. It's something that comes along with case managers who are, they're part of the health system, but they help patients navigate the whole system so the chronic disease self-management program was part of a wider program of chronic illness management now that definition sometimes crops up in the pain management literature but not always from a policy perspective what I think happened and don't quote me 100% on this is that in the early 2000s some of our politicians went over to the states and thought, this is brilliant, they went to Kaiser Permanente, which is one of their health management organisations, and they brought that model over to the UK, but they did not modify it in terms of context. Now, you might be familiar with the Expert Patient Programme, and that was what was based on the Chronic Disease Self-Management Programme, which was then adapted to be the Arthritis Self-Management Programme. So, insert name of illness, self-management program which followed the same principles. In the UK it became the expert patient program but that was again not very well embedded within the health system so GP practitioners or different services weren't very connected to it. I think at the same time the idea of pain as as a long-term condition was becoming more accepted and colleagues for example at Guys in St. Thomas's Hospital in London, the Input Pain Programme, had developed this multidisciplinary pain management programme based on cognitive behavioural therapy and multimodal rehabilitation for pain. And somewhere along the line, those two seem to have blended into each other, where the language is now inter interspaced or it's, it's interchangeable for a lot of professionals. But I think by understanding the history, these were very separate ideas, but then they merged. And I think they have a life of their own now because globally, self-management in chronic pain is really, it's accepted as a given, but not that it has all these different meanings, configurations.
0: Something I hear a lot from people living with chronic illness is that being told to self-manage, often without appropriate care and support, can make them feel like they're being cast aside, ignored, and responsible for bearing the full burden of their illness. For many, it can cause feelings of frustration and desperation, as well as guilt about being unable to cope or, and with very heavy scare quotes here, properly manage the weight of juggling life relationships and work with a complex and challenging medical condition. Jackie says because there's no consensus around what self-management actually means, her research found that patients are left feeling abandoned by the system. Because of all this confusion
1: about how we use the term, the result is friction. So quite a significant amount of friction. For example, a patient who has waited two years or so to see a specialist pain service, who is then told at their first appointment that they're being offered self-management, Those patients felt really well. What's the point? I'm already self managing my condition. What was the point in me waiting two years to speak to you? So, I think that seems to cause quite a lot of friction, irritation. The lack of consensus was also really evident in the same service if you spoke to different professionals. So, whoever had seen them first would have offered, for example, a medic or a pain consultant may have said, after all these investigations, I think you would find a self-management approach helpful. So they think whatever they think, who knows, then they'd pass that person on to someone else in their team. And for example, the nurses would say, well, self-management is, I'd have to say that the nurses had the most expansive understanding of self-management. So they would talk about sleep, they would talk about relationships they would talk about finance you know they were really quite open to pretty much all sorts of things that can contribute. The next group of professionals which traditionally or more commonly in the UK or in England anyway pain management programs are run mostly by psychologists and physiotherapists sometimes you also have occupational therapists and nurses and medics but On the whole, it's usually a combined physical and psychological approach. Now, psychologists and physios working within pain management programs used self-management in an entirely different way. So they were more aligned with what I understood to be self-management when I first started on this journey. And that was this huge multimodal intervention that included psychological therapies, different ilks it also included support for building up activity movement rest sleep you know it was a really it's a catch-all phrase for quite a complex set of things now when the patients were being asked to consider this type of treatment they were just being given that one word self-management but in reality they were being exposed to a lot of other information so I think it's not what it says on the tin you weren't really been given the option of of what it sounds like so it sounds really logical self-management managing yourself or of the self and so what I also then seemed to find was that miscommunication led to patients turning down the service so they felt I don't think that would be helpful I'm opting out. So they would drop out or they would opt out of services that may be helpful. Big headline finding for me was that misunderstandings happened when we use this shorthand.
0: It's really worrying, but not at all surprising to hear that a lack of clarity around this term is actually causing people to miss out on care that might be helpful to them. I guess it sits alongside the feeling that many people have that self-management is maybe a bit of a cost-saving exercise, a way for a stretched healthcare system to save time and money by putting the sole responsibility of care on the patient. It reminds me of a conversation I had a few years ago with a lovely NHS physiotherapist working in a hypermobility unit. I'm very fortunate to be able to self-fund my care, but my consultant recommended that I be referred to an NHS physio for some hydrotherapy as she thought I would benefit from it. After a long wait, I had my first session to meet the physio. She was understanding and knowledgeable, and she told me that I could probably get around six sessions in total. When I asked her about how this works for patients with a long-term condition that changes constantly, she told me, our job is to empower you to manage your health. But the thing is, I know for a fact that I wouldn't be where I am today, and I wouldn't have the tools to be able to manage my condition if I didn't have someone who was constantly on my side. Someone working with me to get stronger, but also to adapt things for me based on my pain, injuries, fatigue, and goals. Not only have all these things changed dramatically over the years, six sessions also wouldn't take into account the psychological support that I needed to feel safe enough in my body, which has also taken years of work with my PT alongside the physical work we do. And I don't blame the physio at all, it's not her fault that's all she can offer, but it was incredibly frustrating to hear for all the patients who are struggling with their bodies to an extent that could be mitigated if they were given the right ongoing care. So it's easy to see why having a handful of sessions on the NHS and then just being left to manage for the next however many years by yourself feels like you're just being abandoned. And Jackie says these feelings came up in her research too.
1: So one of the other storylines that came from the literature was this idea that self-management was about cost containment. So that in a world where people have more and more long-term conditions, we need to manage the costs better. And if self-management is safe, effective, not harmful, that's the thing we need to give people. So I'm not surprised at all that people are experiencing care as being cut off and being pushed back onto the patient in defense of healthcare professionals i'm not i don't necessarily think that they're deliberately thinking that but that is certainly the impact of having programs of work that are not embedded within the wider health system so one of the things that you've just spoken about that i picked up on and that was very much my my research participants felt very much the same thing where they had access to healthcare professionals, for example, a GP or a rheumatologist to someone, but it was not sufficient to allow them to know what to do in the absence of those healthcare professionals. So they would have a small amount of skills that they'd picked up on or ideas or tips, but then when they'd go out into the world, they'd encounter a different you know, context, maybe they went for a wedding, and that hadn't happened before they saw the healthcare professional. And so what a few of my participants did, was they did something that I hadn't considered, but it's obviously very logical, is they they built a wider network that excluded or that was separate from healthcare professionals. So I would say the formal pain or health services, so they would within their own personal networks identify for example a personal trainer or or someone who was sympathetic to the fact that they had some limitations and was happy to work with them on the flip side there is also this issue with our colleagues who are working in the leisure centers for example in the in social prescribing where they probably hold ideas about pain and illness that are very biomedical. And so if someone with pain or something goes to see them, they might get frightened about giving the wrong advice and maybe exacerbating the condition. So there is this divide, which is, I suppose, it's a knowledge gap on either side, where There's just not as much recognition of what else people can do to live with their conditions. Maybe regular personal training, but in in places where people don't have the financial resources to do that, there are a few very selected areas in the country where the voluntary sector started to build up to provide community-driven, very grassroots-led initiatives that might include... All the things that you've talked about, for example, it might be gardening, but with someone who understands pacing or 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 activity management, or it might be looking at what the community needs and then empowering. I hate that word, but we can come back to that. But you know, giving people the tools that and the confidence they need to engage more in things that are not traditionally health services,
0: but are extremely valuable to people. Yeah, giving people the opportunity to engage back with things that are important to them in their lives.
1: Yeah, absolutely, because I think that as a from my physio hat, that is absolutely what we talk about. If we're talking the talk, we set goals, we think about values, but I don't think that we think far enough about in somebody's day-to-day life, how are they going to keep making progress with that? goal how are they going to get support to achieve that goal and in terms of general behavior change you would never say to someone you should stop smoking off you go if that person is having trouble stopping smoking you'd give them resources or or point them in the direction of something they'd be checked on or if somebody said i would like to lose weight or gain weight they tend to be given additional support so i wonder if that kind of model could be expanded so that when we say self management i think it's very individualistic it focuses on an individual but it doesn't account for the resources that that individual has or the capacity that they have to mobilize their resources because if you're having a bad day and your brain's not like functioning and you're in pain you might not be able to to do the things you know to go for your pt appointment and things like that
0: a lot of people feel blamed when they aren't able to quote unquote manage but a big part of that is like you said the resources aren't there to be able to support them to manage in the first place and when it is this this idea of self management it inherently feels like it's something that you have to do and that's something that i come across a lot as a perfectionist that as soon as like i start having a bit more trouble with something I'm like what did I do wrong or what can I optimize what can I do for all of this and again like I have a lot of support around me and resources to be able to play around with that but at the same time it is this this wider idea that people aren't given the medication that they need or support to find the right level of medication for them they're not given just all of these wider things which is again as you said it's i don't blame the individual people working within the system here it also comes down to policy and how we think about what it means to live with a long term condition
1: yeah absolutely and i think i think i have a background in public health so i did a postgraduate degree focusing on global public health and I think the the value of that insight was around recognizing that illness does not just come from pathogens or injuries. It can be a result of the wider things that are happening in society. For example, Michael Marmot's work, it's very much around what they call the social determinants of health. So sometimes you can do as much as you can to be healthy, but if you live next to a busy road, in less than ideal conditions that are cramped, if you are not financially secure, despite having three or four jobs, all of these things contribute to your experience of healthcare. So if you are constantly receiving information from healthcare professionals all the time, but your health literacy is not that great, that's just going into the ether And if you are experiencing racism all the time, that makes you have lots of stress. And if you are having issues because of your gender identity, and that's creating lots of issues, all of these things have pathways that can lead to illness. But when we think then about illness itself, we tend to focus on individual factors. So for me, casting the eyes wider around the social determinants of health and even more than that, you know, that is still focused on how an individual and their environment interacts. But if you then look at the policies that dictate how our services are organized and run, that also makes it very clear that the way pain management services, for example, have been shaped and how they have been evaluated, is based on the fact that we have some very strange policies around pain. Um, So for my findings, there really is no comprehensive pain policy in England. There is much more of a focus on that in Scotland, but in England, pain doesn't have its own space. It tends to fall under a whole bunch of other different conditions. Therefore, it's no wonder that our services are so disparate. Um, The national pain audit that was carried out by the British Pain Society, this is almost 10 years ago now, showed that, it showed, it depends where you live. You might have a multidisciplinary pain service like ours, where you get to see everybody um, and you get offered a whole bunch of different initiatives, or there's a lone clinician working in rural shire, (laughs) I'm not, not sure which shire, but that person might only have recourse to medicines and that's all you'll get offered etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think those three levels, which um, so from a sociology perspective, we talk about the macro, the policy levels, the big things, you know, the economic crash, the, the COVID, the things that determine what our lives and our societies look like, then the MISO, which is uh, distilled down to organisations like the NHS, how do they interpret what's going on to determine how you you can access services and what services are available and that might include to some extent healthcare professionals' attitudes, beliefs, what evidence, the role of evidence, whose knowledge, which knowledge and so by the time you think about the individual living with a condition or with illness, they're just faced with so many different things that are contributing to what they can and can't do that I'm not sure that self-management is a valid way of talking about all those things because it reduces complexity to something that seems very simple and I know people are very passionate about it so I'm not saying there's anything wrong with self-management I just think we have to be clearer as to what it is and who it's available for
0: This episode is sponsored by Flow, the online pharmacy that makes ordering your medication easy. Manage and track your medication and have it delivered at the touch of a button. I don't know about you, but I know from firsthand experience how much time and effort can go into managing your medications. From long queues at the pharmacy and on hold to being given the wrong brand or medications not being ready on time, it can add a lot of unnecessary stress. Flow will liaise with your GP for you and they allow patients to track, manage and order medications with ease. They also send you handy prompts so you'll never miss a medication again. And they're not just another online pharmacy. They have a dedicated team of pharmacists and patient care professionals who can be reached online or over the phone. You can organise your prescriptions ahead of time with their free delivery via the Royal Mail 48-hour tracked service across the UK. And if you live in Birmingham or London, you can also try the same-day delivery service for free two delivery credits are assigned to your profile automatically upon registration they also offer bookable time slots so you don't have to wait all day for your order visit weareflow.com that's weareflow.com or download flow on your favorite app store now i talk about self-management a lot and i guess to me self-management is thinking about what i need to do and adjust in my life to be able to live with my health conditions It reminds me of a chat I had with my GP when I was having a really tough time mentally a few years ago. I said to him that I wish there was somewhere I could go for a week to just be looked after and where I don't have to think about managing my health as much as I do. And he said to me that as nice as that would be, I have conditions that are very dependent on what I do. And whilst it's frustrating, it is true to an extent. As I said in the intro, I happen to live with conditions that are severely under research, which means that perhaps in the future there'll be more medical interventions that are actually useful. But it's worth mentioning that acknowledging that I do have to spend a huge amount of time, money and brain space on managing my conditions doesn't mean that they exist within a vacuum. It doesn't mean that patients don't need ongoing support, be that for medication, physiotherapy or even social things, it doesn't mean that the wider environment and life experiences don't all play a role too. And it got me thinking, is there a better term for self-management? And what needs to change to improve a system that's leaving so many people feeling left behind? In terms of an individual living their lives with a condition
1: a lot of the time that involves having appointments with healthcare professionals non-healthcare professionals taking medications adjusting those medications um, having procedures not having procedures so i think that complexity let's think about how it's vast it's entangled and by naming it, at least you can start to negotiate it versus if we quickly go to the, you know, for example, if I were to write a policy and I said self-management is the corner of this cornerstone of this policy, what does that mean? Like, which bit? Like the literature shows, I think I'm down, I'm on to 46 papers and about four of them have the same understanding of self-management. There are so many different versions of it. So... I don't know, in an ideal world, do we just repurpose it and say, let's, I mean, you you can't make people not use a term, but perhaps if someone says that the question you might ask them is, I don't know, could I, could I, could I just pause you there and ask, what do you mean by self-management? I'm happy to work with you. I'd just like to understand it a bit better. So what we call things matters. So for example, I think there's already a lot of care out there for people with pain for example so if you had arthritis type of pain you might be under the care of a rheumatology service and under a rheumatology service that might be all sorts of things including education on how to care for your joints about managing your you know your diet and looking at maintaining a healthy weight so there's already you see how by unpacking it i suddenly start to name more and more things. When it comes to pain, we can also disaggregate what we do. Instead of saying the pain clinic, you go, well, right, I went to the pain clinic and I spoke to an advanced physiotherapy practitioner where we identified these things that were problematic for me. Therefore, number one, I had to have another appointment with the pain consultant to discuss any procedures that would be acceptable to me. I have signed on to one of their pain management rehabilitation programs to focus on building up psycho, you know, psychological skills, such as my coping strategies when it comes to distress. I've also picked out ways to build up my physical activity because it's really important for me to be able to go up four sets of stairs when I'm at home because I live on a two-level flat. So just by describing I have expanded what is available for people. And what I touched on before, we could then go further and say, those stairs, the trouble I have with those stairs is, I'm really scared that if I fall, I'll be on my own at home and my family lives in a different town or city. So it might be that we might think of technology. Is there anything such as having my phone with me that would build up my confidence in doing that? Do I need to speak to an occupational therapist to help me identify what we can do? Actually, I'm really weak because I've not done that for a long time. I think four sets of stairs would be quite hard or four steps would be really hard. So I need to build up some strength. I hate the gym. So how am I do you see what I mean? The conversation can build on a conversation rather than shutting it down. So I think absolutely we can continue to use the word self-management. But I just think people need to say what they mean by self-management so that we minimize confusion. And that that would be the recommendation, I think, for me from my my own practice is if someone says self-management, I'm very annoying now. I would, I just
0: go, what do you mean? Growing up surrounded by medical professionals, so much of my care was very much do as I say, with little regard for my feelings or thoughts about what I wanted or felt I needed. I'm pleased to say over the years, especially more recently, this has started to shift and I am hearing from some people that what they need is more central in their treatment. Jackie agrees that these conversations are happening more often, but she says there's still a long way to go. I think the issue we
1: have is many healthcare professionals are trained or were trained in a under a biomedical model Um, so they're really focusing on if it hurts what's wrong with it let's fix it there has not always been the acknowledgement of sometimes we're not able to fix it and make it as it was before therefore people are living messy lives and therefore healthcare has to accommodate for messy lives I do believe that is changing. That is in the curricula for all healthcare professionals, including medicine, to basically say that health is not just about what's happening biologically or physiologically. It's also what's happening in the social world. It's also what's happening in people's psyche, their psychology and everything in between. The issue we have is we have a legacy of professionals who have been trained to to look for simplicity. And working with simplicity is easier than working with complexity. So when I was younger, it was easier for me to see a knee as a knee problem as opposed to a knee attached to a human being who was going to ask me lots of questions and complex things that I couldn't address. I didn't have the skills to address, for example. From a policy perspective, there's also been a shift. So we also have initiatives like personalized care, which is encouraging all healthcare professionals to to do some of the things we're talking about, Um, you know, really attend to and listen to people's concerns and see what they can do to work with that. I know general practice and primary care is really geared to trying to build up on that. They have their own issues with time. But certainly the ethos of of having people in their messy, complicated lives, joining a healthcare system that is also messy and complicated and finding a way to navigate it through. So I do think that many places are starting to understand that better. In terms of pain care, that is something that I think we will grapple with for a long time because Every part of the health system takes responsibility for pain, but probably not in the specialized way that, for example, in my role that I would do, you know, my hope is that this is changing, but that is a very slow system, change, of values, it's a, it's a huge, big difference. But it also is quite satisfying to go to work and feel that actually I've contributed in moving something and and enriching someone's life rather than feeling stuck and frustrated and all those kind of words it's a better way to practice to just you know look at people as human beings and i know there's a a recent paper that's been published by one of my colleagues, and she's doing her PhD in Queensland, and she's talked about human-centred practices. So rather than focusing on bio or psycho or social, she's like, there's more human-centred approaches that just allows you to switch your lens a little bit. The flip side of that is we, we don't live in a vacuum, so these ideas are also part of our patients' lives. And so if patients hold a biomedical view, it's going to be very difficult, for example, to come to see a physiotherapist who does a lot of talking, as opposed to what they might expect, which is, I would say, more use of their hands or or more, I want to say outdated, but I might get murdered by my colleagues. You know, it's it's we don't just do one thing you know uh, we talk about physiotherapy as a profession that could offer a lot more but when you think of physiotherapy as a technique or as a a treatment you get a little bit stuck and so that mismatch between the expectations and the reality is always going to be a problem but i think through language we can start to unpack what it is we mean and some of those dis- disagreements might, you know, they might become less and less.
0: I love Jackie's take on all of this, but I keep coming back to the question, how do we start implementing some of these ideas in a healthcare system that is understaffed and underfunded? We need strong primary care. By that, I mean general practice, by the people you see
1: first, not me, not me in specialist tertiary services. Currently, we get quite a lot of investment as far as I'm aware. And I think that... We do need to strengthen primary care so that people early on in their illness journeys or in, and in their communities are able to access help that doesn't have to be complex, you know, before they've built up issues around, you know, trust and, you know, your emotional roller coaster when you've got that chronic illness. Perhaps when it's early on, if we can strengthen primary care, I think that is a universal kind of global health ambition, which is beyond me, but I, I certainly know that that is a policy initiative. The second thing is I think we can expand the workforce so the healthcare workforce busy, very very busy like people aren't sitting twiddling their thumbs, but I think we have overlooked the capacity in our communities you know peer to peer-to-peer to peer support is you know what you do I think is really fundamental to people understanding from someone who gets what they're going through what options they are available so rather than waiting your two years someone listening to your podcast for example might go what hang on a minute this is something I'm curious about let me go and explore I think working with our voluntary sector you know they understand things like social isolation and loneliness for example in older people or in different you know if you're a young mother and you're dealing with kind of early pickups and things like that it might be that your information comes it's better to come from the local library where you go to monkey music or or something like that so for me I think expanding the idea of what health and social care is means we can do more in our communities and then we're only accessing health care at the point of need and in terms of cost I, I genuinely think. If what we're doing is not working for people, it's going it's expensive because it's not helpful. So people must just be going round and round in circles and up and down and not feeling very satisfied. So if it if it ever there was such a thing as a cost neutral solution, it would be about inverting the pyramid of investment a little bit and doing more where people can access it closer to their homes. So that when you do need specialist services, you're not waiting three years for it. You are waiting an appropriate length of time to receive, you know, relevant care. And when you're discharged, it's not about, right, we've cut you off for life, but there's a safety net that you're going out back into your community. And there is things set up for you that you understand that are relevant to you. And they're not just something I came up with on a Tuesday. In my, you know, in my clinic. So I think that wider idea about health, I think is fundamental for all of us to think about because suddenly there's, then there's a lot more we can do. If it's about self-fulfillment, it's about doing meaningful work, if it's about having relationships that are fulfilling, right, suddenly it's no longer, let's just wait for the NHS, let's, let's rethink and let's reimagine, for me, pain care, without being too technologically, it's not it's not fancy, fancy stuff. We're limited currently in the amount of types of medications that are available that are safe for long-term use. We are limited in the types of interventions and procedures. So therefore, we, we do have to be creative. And maybe there's someone out there who's just doing some stuff that we could learn from. I learn from my patients every day. And it's probably why I'm doing the work that I've done so far.
0: I think What everything seems to come down to is (laughs) we're people, we're humans. And if a doctor says, I don't know, but I want to help you. if, if, If you're walking out of an appointment and you're feeling like someone was kind to you and someone listened to you and that even if there isn't a medication available there might be something as you said in the community something that could the, that desire to to recognize that you're a human and that you want to be able to live a life in whatever way is fulfilling to you and I think even if just that intention is at the heart of everything it would completely shift the relationship a lot of people have with their healthcare. and I think that's quite a powerful thing.
1: Yeah and and I know it doesn't sound very high-tech and and, and fancy but I do I really do think that by opening conversations and being a little bit less rigid in our perspectives I might hear if, if my patient is telling me I do not buy that psychological stuff if I hear that I can go I've heard you let's think together about what else could be available for you I recognise that there's a lot of work involved in in having an illness or a long-term condition with or without pain. There's a lot of understanding work. There's a lot of, you know, planning and processing as well as the day-to-day life of just living. And I think that is something we as healthcare professionals need to acknowledge that there's a lot of wisdom in people who have been living with something for a long time. And my learning from the last four years has been, goodness me, you know, people are are completely inventing new ways of doing things by building their networks. And by that, I mean, you know, when they say it takes a village to raise a child, I think it takes a village to live with a A chronic illness because you build your village around you depends who you come across if you need a vicar on that day that's what you need on that day you don't suddenly go no I'm I'm more of a bakery kind of person you know there's days you go to the bakery there's days you go to the butchers and if you're you 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 know you might need to spend some time on your own swimming or whatever so I think for me the takeaway message is if we go back to the idea of self-management is if you can expand your idea of what is possible by expanding your relational network, I think that will enrich what you're able to, to do about yourself and by learning from peers. I mean, we're catching up, the healthcare professionals are behind you, learning from you, but I think that idea of a networked village is really key in, in that day-to-day living and thriving.
0: One of the most challenging aspects of my work has been talking to people every week who have been failed by the medical professionals, who are isolated and scared and ill. And the frustrating part of this is that so much of it feels avoidable if there were systems in place to help support people who are sick. And as we all know, this lack of care doesn't just impact our health, it impacts every aspect of our lives. So I absolutely love that final sentiment from Jackie. Whilst there's still a really long way to go, one of the highlights of my job has been talking to medical professionals who are working hard to change things, offering the care to their patients that is so different to what was on offer a decade ago. It gives me hope for the future. A huge thanks to our sponsor, Flow, the online pharmacy that makes ordering your medication easy. Visit weareflow.com. That's weareflow.p.h.l.o.com, or download Flow on your favourite app store to manage, track, and have your medication delivered at the touch of a button. If you find this podcast helpful and want to support my work, please consider subscribing to my restroom newsletter. I share what I like to call slow content about chronic illness, from personal insights into how I try and figure out self-management to why some of us are so impacted by the weather. You can find out more at natashalipman.substack.com. Please rate and leave a review as that really helps new people find us and please share the episode on your social media and with anyone who you think would enjoy it. That's all from me. Thanks so much for joining me in the restroom. Ta-ta for now.